This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My talk is about liver transplant for hepatocellular carcinoma. And let's see, okay, so it's working. So when you think about... Uh, hepatocellular cancer and liver transplant is really quite extraordinary to see the evolution of HCC previously as a contraindication to liver transplant in the early 1990s and now being the most common indication for liver transplant in the United States. And I think that this uh, transformation, uh, you can give a lot of credit to Milan criteria being the benchmark for selection of candidates for liver transplantation based on this seminal publication by uh, Massafero from more than 20 years ago. Many of you are familiar with this criteria, a single lesion up to five centimeters or two to three lesions, none of which exceeds three centimeters. Okay, so in 2002, the United Network for Organ Sharing adopted the malign criteria for determining priority listing for liver transplant under the MEL system of organ allocation. And the Milan criteria were further divided into T1, which means a single lesion under two centimeter, and T2, one lesion, two to five centimeters, two to three lesions, up to three, in this UNO staging system. Um, as I mentioned, we've seen tremendous growth of HCC uh, in liver transplant now accounting for 20, 30% of all transplants performed in the United States compared to less than 5% before 2002. So um, for about 10 years, we didn't really see much in terms of change in the organ allocation system until a few years ago. And these are some of the more recent changes and more changes are coming. And But many of these changes occur uh, at a time when Rio Hirose, who's one of our transplant surgeons, really chairing the liver intestinal committee and really pushed some of the, uh, the, the issues along against a strong resistance from programs in other parts of the country. So a lot of credit to his persistence. So one change was the implementation of very you know, strict uniform diagnostic criteria under the LIRES or OPTN classification. We've talked a lot about that before, so I won't spend a lot of time for the interest of time today to go over all that. And then standardized reporting is required of all liver transplant programs in the country. So the purpose of that is to minimize misdiagnosis of cancer so we don't transplant patients who are, you know, claim to have cancer and end up not having cancer. That's not a great utilization of resource. And then in 2005, we also Notice the implementation of a six-month mandatory wait period before priority listing for liver transplant. That's because of an unfair advantage given to HCC patients in many other parts of the country, not here, but in many other parts of the country. So we need to protect them. At the same time, it also gives us the opportunity to observe for tumor biology. And then the priority, the melt exception point, is now capped at 34 so that it really protects the non-HCC patients who are critically ill with melosodium of 35 or higher. So those are the ones who are really in critical need for liver transplant. 
and more changes will be coming. So that's beyond what I'm going to talk about today, but uh, we'll discuss more about that uh, during the conference. Local regional therapy uh, is frequently used to control tumor growth before liver transplant, serving as a bridge to transplant. Local regional therapy like chemoembolization, RFA, microwave, or Y90 radioembolization. Uh, we recognize that there's no randomized controlled trials or level one evidence to confirm the benefit of local regional therapy in reducing the risk of dropout from the waiting list. However, this is cost effective when the waiting time is expected to be at least six months. And currently for many of our patients on a waiting list for liver transplant here at UCSF, the waiting time can be up to 12 to 18 months. So early in my career, uh, I had the privilege of participating in some very friendly debates about, like this one, about UCSF versus malign criteria. And that's me down here. <laughs> and so, um, but I think that we were actually approaching this issue a little bit wrong at the time. Rather than arguing about, you know, is it, should it be five centimeter or 6.5 centimeter? The focus now is really on individual tumor behavior. Okay, so not all five centimeter tumors are the same. So I think we're seeing a little bit of a paradigm shift. So we should be moving past the one-size-fit-all principle in selecting candidates for liver transplant, and in fact recognizing that even within malign criteria, we may be dealing with three different groups. One group, they don't do very well after transplant, and we need to identify that group. Another group may not even need liver transplant, or at least not urgently. There's a, the third group that would derive the greatest transplant benefit. And I think that uh, we have now understand a little bit more that applying local regional therapy and observing tumor behavior following local regional therapy is really the key in differentiating between all these three groups. And it also applies to tumor downstaging for patients with initial tumor burden beyond malign criteria. So start out with the group that we don't think would do very well after liver transplantation. That may account for 10, 20% of all the cases. And uh, as the waiting time is longer, give us the opportunity to observe for response to local regional therapy following this ablate and wait principle that was proposed by John Roberts a few years ago. And that in combination with tumor markers really serve as the main driver for refining our current selection of candidates for liver transplantation. So data continue to emerge suggesting that you know, response to local regional therapy can actually predict prognosis after liver transplant. This is a very large multi-center European study. The aims to study the impact of tumor response after local regional therapy and change in the AFP as prognostic factor after liver transplantation. They use the modified resist criteria and tumor progression by this criteria is defined as at least a 20% increase in the sum of the diameter largest lesion or development of at least one new lesion. And the risk factors include radiologic tumor progression by modified resist or an increase in the AFP slope by at least 15 per month. And those without these risk factors, they have the best post-transplant outcome, irrespective of whether they are within 
or malign criteria. So that's really a little a paradigm shift that the malign criteria has very little impact in the overall outcome. And then those with tumors beyond malign, but with any one of these risk factors, they do much worse. Okay. And AFP has been shown in a plethora of studies to be predictive of uh, prognosis after liver transplantation. This is the French multicenter study clearly showing that the higher the AFP, the worse the survival, especially AFP over 1,000. And so they came up with this prognostic model combining tumor size, number, AFP. Uh, they add up the points, and those with two points or less, they are at low risk for developing tumor recurrence. Um, if you have a patient who have tumors within Milan, but AFP very high, over 1,000, these patients are at high risk for developing tumor recurrence. And conversely, you may have patients with tumors beyond Milan, but low AFP, they're at low risk for tumor recurrence. And this is a study from our group with Bilal Hamid showing very similar findings. And you can see here, uh, these are patients within Milan. They have AFP over 1,000, the five-year Survival without recurrence was only 52% compared to 80% five-year survival for those with lower AFP within malign criteria. So in this study, uh, we realized that applying an AFP cut of over 1,000 to patients with HCC would result in excluding about 5% of patients from liver transplant, but a 20% reduction in the rate of post-transplant tumor recurrence. So for a number of years, we have mandated that those with AFP over 1,000, uh, they need to show reduction in the AFP, mostly with local regional therapy to under 500 with local regional therapy before liver transplantation. And this approach has recently been implemented as a national policy. And we really have data to support that. This was just presented in the ASLD meeting a couple weeks ago. You can see that patient with AFP over 1,000 going into liver transplant um, the five-year survival under 50%. If you see a reduction in AFP from over 1,000 to under 500, above 100, the five-year survival improved by about 20% down to close to 70%, and even better, 88%, if you see further reduction in the AFP to under 100. So this is really fascinating about, you know, AFP response to local regional therapy, and the next... Uh, area I want to talk about is, you know, some patients may not even need liver transplant, at least not as urgently. This is a study by Neil Mehta from our group. Really, uh, what he did was that he identified a subgroup of patients who actually are at very, very low risk for dropout from the waiting list. These patients have one lesion, two to three centimeters, small lesion, single tumor, complete response like you know, no residual tumor after the first local regional therapy, low AFP after the first treatment, less than 20, and then you can see that the accumulated probability of dropout at two years was under 2% compared to 27% for all the other patients. So that means that these patients, either they don't need a transplant or don't need a transplant urgently, they do not need the same priority as all the other patients within malign criteria. This is probably about 20% of the entire cohort. So if we can really refine who we want to transplant, I think that we created some room for us to really transplant patients who had initial tumor burden 
exceeding malign criteria, but have been successfully downstaged to within malign criteria. So this is an example of a patient with a very large tumor here, beyond malign and treated with chemoembolization, and we only consider the area of tumor, uh, viable tumor, and not counting the area of necrosis when we try to evaluate whether downstaging is successful. And our approach is generally to try to continue treatment until you see complete tumor necrosis going into transplant. It's not a requirement, but we intend to do that. I can tell you that if you see a response like this in a patient undergoing downstaging, this patient is going to do very, very well. So just quick update about the latest uh, data from UCSF. The UCSF inclusion criteria for downstaging are summarized here. Uh, one tumor up to eight centimeters. So uh, there's often uh, confusion about the UCSF criteria and this downstaging inclusion criteria is a little bit different. So this limit is a little bit higher, up to eight centimeters, two, three tumors, up to five centimeters total tumor diameter, up to eight. And then we also included patients with four or five lesions, up to three centimeters, and total tumor diameter up to eight centimeters. So in this latest um, study, about a third of patients undergoing downstaging had dropped off on the waiting list. The ones who were successfully downstaged and received liver transplant, we observed very good outcome. Five-year survival close to 80%, recurrence rate very low, under 10%. And we, when we compare the five-year survival with the group without going through downstaging within malign criteria, the five-year survival pretty much identical at about 80%. So downstaging allows, in principle, selection of subgroup of patients with more favorable biology they're more likely to respond to treatment and also do well after liver transplant. And a multi-center study from Region 5 uh, led by Neil Mehta has further demonstrated that it's feasible to apply downstaging on a broader scale beyond single tumor experience, beyond single institutional experience and still achieve very good post-transplant outcome. And we are very proud of the fact that the UCSF downstaging protocol has recently been accepted and will soon be implemented as a national policy. It's happening in about a month from now. So just a few words about the all-comers downstaging protocol that we are still doing. So this basically applies to patients with initial tumor burden beyond the UCSF inclusion criteria. And we mandate a longer period of observation, at least six months, and try to achieve the endpoint of downstaging to within malign criteria for those um, who are being considered for uh, disease donor liver transplantation. And one very interesting observation is that the probability of achieving successful downstaging in this you know, all-commons protocol when the tumor burden is very high is really strongly dependent on the initial tumor burden. So the burden here is the sum of the tumor number and the largest tumor diameter. You can see that as this number goes up, the probability of successful downstaging goes down. So if this number, say you have a nine centimeter lesion, you know, the, the sum of the tumor number and the diameter would be 10. And in this particular situation, that this is still over 50%, but beyond that, 
you're looking at less than 50% chance of successful downstaging. So life don't live a transplant. Um, Dr. Fries already talked about. So in life don't live a transplant, we are not really dealing with uh, resource utilization, but trying to balance donor risk and recipient benefit under this concept of double equipoise. It's very important to realize that uh, the recipient survival threshold in life donor liver transplant has not been well defined. So what should be the minimum survival threshold after life donor liver transplant? Nobody would argue that it's okay to proceed with life donor transplant if the expected five-year survival is at least 70%, like what you see with Milan or the UCSF downstaging protocol. And then we still require a minimal observation period of three months, despite the fact that you may have a life donor available. Now, in a patient with impaired liver function that may not tolerate local regional therapy or downstaging treatment, we are able to allow patients who are, have tumors within the UCSF criteria to undergo life donor liver transplant without going going through downstaging. And then to push the envelope a little bit further, you know, we apply the all-comers downstaging protocol, and those who have good liver function, able to be downstaged in that setting to within UCSF criteria, we will proceed with life donor liver transplant. The observation period that we require is a little bit longer, up to six months. So finally, a few words about Tumor recurrence that's something we try to avoid after liver transplantation. So our surveillance strategy for recurrent HCC after liver transplant is still not very well defined. We have lack of proven adjuvant therapy to reduce the risk of tumor recurrence. Uh, however, we used to think that recurrent tumor, basically there's nothing we can do, but now there's emerging data that we can achieve long-term survival with tumor-directed therapy in a subset with local recurrence. Limited evidence on serafinib for treatment of recurrent HCC after transplant, but we see serafinib being commonly used in clinical practice is an area that needs further investigation. But I think the bottom line is that there's still a need for us to develop a risk score to more accurately assess the individual risk of tumor recurrence after transplant so we have more standardized surveillance protocol and would help us design future adjuvant therapy trials. So um, we have recently developed and validated the retreat score. This is a multi-center study uh, with Neil Mehta as the lead author. And my only contribution to this study is to come up with this name, retreat. And that came to me just one morning uh, taking a shower. So I just you know, thought this name is really uh, quite fitting for us. So retreat means risk estimation of tumor recurrence after transplant. So what is it? So this is basically based on analysis of multiple risk factors for tumor recurrence. I identify three independent factors. AFP at the time of transplant, the higher the number, the higher the number of points we give to, and then the presence of microvascular invasion or macrovascular invasion, and then tumor burden based on the largest viable tumor size and number of viable lesions. So this, I think, it's uh, 
important because we take into consideration the effect of local regional therapy before transplant. So you can actually have a retreat score of zero. That means that this person has low ARP under 20, no vascular invasion, and basically complete necrosis, no viable tumor in the explant, so you have a retreat score of zero. And then very predictive of you know, tumor recurrence, you have a retreat score of zero, less than 3% recurrence, and then goes up with higher retreat score. If you have a retreat score of five or higher, 75% recurrence at five years. So this really helped us in defining our surveillance strategies and we're still in the process of modifying this a little bit. So we think that if somebody has a retreat score of zero, we don't need to do any surveillance so that we minimize cost. And so this is being implemented at UCSF. So somebody who has a retreat score that's very high, very high risk of tumor recurrence, you know, up to 75% in five years, these patients are prime target for future neoadjuvant therapy. And then it helps us design future therapy trials. So I think that um, this is a summary of what we have been doing as a group. Uh, I think we have made small steps to try to improve upon malign criteria in patient selection, incorporating response to local regional therapy, downstaging, AFP as additional selection tools. The next step may be uh, trying to study about tumor marker and other tumor signatures that are important in predicting post-transplant outcome. There's a need for us to better define tumor staging at the time of transplant to refine our strategies for surveillance after transplant and for future adjuvant therapies for approved medications like serafinib, regorafinib, and some other strategies that may be available in the future with the intent to minimize the risk of recurrent as well as treating recurrent tumor. So thank you very much. Questions? Varun? is about AFP, oh, thanks. Uh, AFP L3 percentage um, and how you guys are using that prognostically. Yeah, um, this is work in progress. So the question is AFP L3 and, uh, and other tumor markers, including DCP. Um, so those um, uh, has been, the experience has been much more extensive in Japan, particularly, and, but the U.S., uh, centers are using more. So there's clearly evidence that suggests a combination of AFP with DCP and AFP L3 are better in diagnostic accuracy or screening. And then in transplant, it may predict prognosis. So we are actually doing it, checking on every single patient. But the most important thing is that we really need to do more analysis to, to know at what cutoff ARP L3 or DCP would be the best prediction for, to, for outcome after transplant. So we know that it's predictive, but the question is at what level would it really make a difference? So I think we are still trying to refine our selection criteria for transplant. Mary Pat. Concern maybe regarding um, donor 
the the donor the quality of the donor liver in patients with liver cancer is there any do you look at that special at all yeah um, so the question is about donor quality and uh, outcome after transplant there's been some data um, preliminary data about um, you know donor age being uh, a negative factor for outcome after liver transplant for HCC and you know one of the problem about analyzing the national database is that they only have survival. They don't have recurrence data that well, even though there's some recurrence data the last few years, but it's still a little you know, worrisome about uh, under-reporting. So other studies did not really confirm that. So I think that the donor issue is still up in the air. And then there was some speculation about uh, your regeneration during life donor liver transplant, but that again has not been confirmed. So we're not seeing the donor, a uh, major impact about donor quality, age, or other factors affecting outcome after transplant for HCC. Yes. therapy or post-transplant therapy? Yeah, so the question is about uh, immunotherapy like levonimab, uh, either pre-transplant or post-transplant. It's a really good question. Uh, we haven't seen any data at all. Uh, even in the non-transplant setting, it's being considered second line because the data is just not mature yet. But I would think that uh, there are some concerns with immunosuppression and using immunotherapy. So we don't really understand that very well yet. But uh, these are only based on case reports. We cannot draw any conclusion. But we have to be extra careful about somebody on immunosuppression getting immunotherapy. Okay, so we should move on to keep on time. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.